Satan. Good morning, Trinity Church. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Doug. I'm the interim uh, lead pastor here during this transition. And I want to wish you a Merry Christ Mass this morning, or Christmas as we often call it. Before we get into the message, I just would love to take a moment and celebrate with you this last weekend with the Star Stomp. Uh, if you had a chance to be here this last weekend, you saw a wonderful production that presented Jesus Christ and the gospel message. So if you had any part in that uh, leading up to the musical itself or in it, whether you were driving screws for the stuff here on stage or painting or doing costuming or directing or choreography or music, if you brought anybody uh, to be a part of it, would you just stand for a minute? And we would like to celebrate you and your work this morning. Thank you so much. I know this moment was not why you did that, you know, just to have that recognition, but we're so glad that you did it. it it's important for us to celebrate. And Kim, are you here this morning? Kim Simons? Would you come on up for a second? <laughs> oh, of course not. This is not why I do this. <laughs> she just said to me, this is not why I do this. <laughs> But we want you to know how wonderful it was, how special you are to be a part of this team, and just to say thank you, real simply, for all the work you do. Thank so thank you. you so much. Thank you very much. I think the message from our kids was clear, that uh, the arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem was worthy of heaven's applause and earth's embrace. And this morning, we're going to take you to Matthew chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Would you open up to Matthew 2? Three weeks ago, we learned that this child at Bethlehem was the Son of Man. That is, he was fully human. Two weeks ago, we realized that this child was also the Son of God. That is, God incarnate, God in flesh. And today, we want to explore what it means that he is the Son of David. And that is the Messiah and world ruler. So this morning, to begin, I would like to take you to Gothenburg, Nebraska. This week, yeah, that's their entry sign. It's, it's where the Pony Express used to go through. They still have a couple of stations there. Uh, the Oregon Trail went through there as well. But uh, last, or this week, actually, a baby boy was born in Gothenburg, uh, Nebraska. His home is off of Highway 80, uh, just north of the Platte River in Dawson County. And uh, Gothenburg is a, a town of about 3,000 people. It's about 1,100 miles from here. So what do you say we go visit the boy? Now, I know a lot of you are sitting there going, I know this is rhetorical, this is not what he means, but I'm serious. What if we were to go visit Gothenburg, Nebraska, go to this boy's town, go to his home, and celebrate him? Can you imagine doing that? Now, if I could read minds this morning, I know I would be hearing thoughts like, Doug, you can't be serious. I just got back uh, from traveling for my boss all week. I'm not about to get back on a plane and go visit a kid I don't even know. You might even be saying, I, I didn't go visit my uh, newborn nephew last year. I just waited for the Facebook pictures, you know. 
or no way, no, 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 no. Today the Titans and Chargers are playing. They're both 7-6. I don't want to miss the game, right? We would have a lot of reasons to not go, and I get that. That makes a lot of sense. No one wants to spend a lot of time and money and effort and, and personal family time on a trip like this when there's no compelling reason to do it, right? That would be our main pushback. But I want you to notice this morning in our text, there is a group of men, a cluster of men, who wrestled with this same thought. Visiting a baby far away they didn't know to do homage to him. Take a look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Let me tell you a little bit about their struggle. So, first of all, the Magi were from ancient Persia. Now, this is a picture of one of the puzzles we have in my house. <laughs> we do a lot of puzzles in my home. I have become converted to puzzle doing. That was not my preference. My daughters and wives, wife, not wives, wife. <laughs> She's not in this service yet, but it is being taped. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, dear. I think I'm in deep. Okay, so let's put it back up there for a second. This is what we typically think of when we think of the Magi, and it's not far from the, uh, the actual story. These were individuals from Persia. They were... Uh, the intellectuals of their empire. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about them as we get into this, but what I want you to notice this morning is that they traveled the same exact distance that we would travel from here to Nebraska to get from Persia to Bethlehem, over a 1,000 miles. They did it on camelback, not a 4x4 Camry, all right? It took them almost a year six months to a year, depending on conditions of weather and, and all the rest of it, and they're doing it to visit an unknown child. They have no relationship to his parents. He lives in an obscure village of 3,000 people, just the size of Gothenburg, and uh, they're unmotivated by family relations, uh, by the fact that they have to leave their wives and their jobs and their comforts of home to make this trip. And get this, when they arrive, they spend less than 48 hours in his presence, and then they depart to go home by a different path, never to see him again in their entire lives. Gosh, I don't know about you, but I have this, this gnawing curiosity about why they would do that when we would not do the same kind of trip. They would probably have a lot of the same reasons that we've had. But look at verse 2. Matthew's explanation of their actions should knock the wind out of us. Matthew 2, 2 says, They asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. These incredibly rich, influential, busy men came to see this unknown, unrelated distant child so they could worship him. That is amazing. That should grab us by the shirt and shake us up a little bit. Why would they do that? Especially putting everything on hold, but folks, this was literally an act of treason to their past loyalties. 
they live in the empire of Persia under its leadership and authority, and they have left that country to come worship a different king. This was truly more than just an act of worship. It was an act of treason against all of their past loyalties because they came to acknowledge him as king of kings and lord of lords. So what do we learn from these guys in terms of the kingship of Jesus Christ? Well, let me give you three things this morning. They're on your handout if you have it. They're also online in your sermon notes uh, on the web uh, site if you'd like to go there. But number one, I think the Magi teach us that Jesus is the future king of Israel whose rule will be global and eternal. He is the king of kings. Look at chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2 again. I'd like to read them for you again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of Jews? We saw him, we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. They came to worship because they understood who he was. He was a king. And not just a king, he was the king of the Jews. The term magi in the Persian language came from a transliteration that meant powerful ones. So our English language hints at that when we have words like uh, magnificent or magnify or majestic. Herodotus, who was one of the Greek historians 500 years before Jesus, tells us that the magi were uh, from one of the tribes of the Medes of the Persians. So if you've ever heard of the, the Maasai tribe in Africa these guys who can jump the height of their body, they were well known for that. But this tribe of the Medes were known for something as well, and that was their ability to study the stars and to understand the times. So they were astronomers, and they coupled that with philosophers. And all of them believed that when they looked at the stars, they could see and anticipate future events in the arrangement of the stars. In fact, they had literally divided the stars and the the heavens into quadrants, And every quadrant represented one of the nations of the world. And they would look for stellar events in these quadrants to tell them about things that they believed would happen in these countries. And especially when they would see a new star or a bright light, that said to them a king had been born. And so when they see his star, this bright light in the heavens that they saw in the east, they said something has happened in the quadrant of Judea. Let's find out about it. But I want you to know that I don't think that alone would have compelled them to go. Isn't it true that kings are born at different times all over the place? They didn't go to visit all of those kings, at least as far as we know from the the records. But there was something else about this child that compelled them, that warranted this kind of response. Their own magi history taught them about this child. If you go back into the Persian history and you look at Uh, 600 years before these magi lived in Persia, Persia had attacked and conquered Babylon. This is a part of Old Testament history. And they came in and took over uh, Babylon right during the reign of King Belshazzar. Now, you remember the story, Daniel 5, King Belshazzar is having this huge riotous party, and the hand of God shows up and writes on one of the walls of his banquet hall, many, many tekel ufarsin. And they can't figure out what it means. He calls the Magi, and none of them can figure it out. And finally, his mom steps up and puts an arm around him and says, look, you need to stop turning white and keep your knees from shaking. Send for this guy that your forefathers, in fact, your dad, used all the time. And we find in Daniel 5.10, she says, there is a man in your kingdom 
who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, magi, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems, the point being Wordle and Sudoku were child's play to Daniel. He had no problem figuring out riddles and difficult problems and interpreting dreams. He was the most famous of all the Magi. He had been sidelined at that point in the Persian Empire, but the queen says you need to call him in because he will provide you with a solution to the writing on the wall. Daniel wrote a book that was left in the archives of Persia. It was on the top ten reading list of every Magi. Can you guess the name of the book? I hope you can. <laughs> Daniel. He wrote a book by his own name. It was left in their treasuries for them to read. And we know this because Daniel wrote his book in two different languages. So if you, you look at it, Daniel chapters 2 through 8 are in Hebrew, but chapters 1 and 9 and following are in Aramaic, the Persian language. Now, why would Daniel write in two different languages? If you were going to write a book, would you write it in different languages? Probably not, unless you have two audiences that you want to capture. Look at some of these passages in Daniel that these guys would have read. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, records God's message about this future king that's going to come. It says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. God compares the kingdoms of men with the kingdom of this future king like the difference between a lightning bug and a lightning bolt. And he says, these other kingdoms are going to disappear, but this kingdom will never disappear. It will stand forever. Daniel 7, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel 9 gives actually the timetable for his arrival and his coronation. It says in Daniel 9.25, 70 weeks or 70 sevens or 490 years are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. They're speaking about Jesus' crucifixion. 490 years from the time of Daniel until his crucifixion, this is what you need to be looking forward to. And the amazing thing is that by the time the Magi had come, 457 of those 490 years had passed. 33 years were left from the birth of Jesus to the death of Jesus. Daniel prophesies in advance, if you're a Jewish leader or religious leader in uh, Judea, you should know this stuff. And if you're a Persian uh, influential leader, you should know this stuff. 
because the day is going to come when you want to come. These uh, guys also had access to all of the Jewish writings which were brought into captivity. So they saw passages like Genesis 49.10 that said this scepter will not depart from Judah. The obedience of the nations is his. Or Isaiah 9, chapter 2, or chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. So if you're a magi in Persia, you have all of this documentation in the great ancient library of Persia, the Jewish scriptures that proclaim this king that will come. You have the book of Daniel that actually gives the exact date that you want to be available in Israel to see this king. And they absorbed all of this information, and it produced in them a conviction and action. And I think this is why they came. It wasn't so much that they saw just the star, but they knew the history, and they decided to act on it. And folks, I think as we come to Christmas time, we too should pause and consider for a moment that we have the exact same information. In fact, we have more, so much more from the New Testament about this king. Christmas is a time to form the same convictions. Christmas is a time to invite us to have these same life-changing actions and to commit treason against all of our other priorities because that's what these men were doing. Leaving their Persian culture and, and social activities and coming a thousand miles to visit this child and literally to worship him and give him rich gifts and then to depart and come back. They established him as their king knowing that ultimately his rule would be over every nation, including their own. So I think the Magi teach us this morning that Jesus is going to be the king of kings with an eternal kingdom, a global kingdom. And he invites us to commit treason against our priorities at this Christmas season, to realign ourselves with his values and his commands. Secondly, I think the Magi teach us that no one has any less of God than they want. If you've come here this morning thinking, I wish I had a deeper relationship with God. I wish I could just sense his love for me in a greater way, his peace, his joy, uh, his calling on my life. The great news is the Magi say, you can have it. Anyone can have as much of God or as little of God as they want. Look at verse 8. Verses 2 through 8, excuse me. The Magi came thundering into town. Where is the one born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of their chief priests and their scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Where would this, be, this Messiah be, this king of kings? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. 
And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So these magi thunder into town. How many of you have nativity sets set up at home? How many magi do you have? Three. Okay, and that's, that's, that's what most of us have. But these guys would have come into town with a huge entourage, a full Persian military escort. You didn't cross the desert without protection. So their entourage would have been much bigger. You need to think Jake Gyllenhaal in the action-adventure uh, movie uh, Prince of Persia, right? They, they come into town, they would have shown up with opulence and arrogance and pomp and circumstance that you would expect from an established world power. Flags are flying high, expensive luggage and attire, and they are making a scene. This is not what we normally set up at Christmas in our nativity sets. In fact, some experts have said there were probably 40 or 50 magi. It was a large subculture in Persia. And who wants to be left out of this event, right? Can you imagine setting up 50 magi crowding around Jesus in your nativity set? <laughs> they made a scene. And what's even worse is that as they come into Jerusalem, they're asking a question. Where is the one born king of the Jews? You have to understand a little bit about Herod. He's 69 years old at this point, and he has spent the last 35 years protecting his throne. 35 years before this, the Roman Empire gave him the throne of Judea and the title, king of the Jews. But he was not Jewish. His dad was an Arab chieftain from Edom. He was an Edomite. And so to establish himself as a Jewish figure, he was very protective of his image, protective of his, his rights. And in fact, he had eliminated every threat to the throne, including his wife, his uncle, his mother-in-law he beheaded, his brother-in-law he drowned by henchmen at a family picnic, and even his sons were poisoned and stabbed to death. He was eliminating any threat to the throne. You can imagine an invitation to a Christmas party at Herod's place. Just watch your back. So as these magi come in, and they're saying, hey, where's the one born king of the Jews? Can you hear the ire in Herod's feelings? And when you look at all of Jerusalem, this is why they got the heebie-jeebies. As they, they thought about this question being asked, oh, no, this is not going to be good in the end. So what does Herod do? He has a three-part uh, three three, uh, plan to eliminate the threat. And you see them in Matthew uh, 2, 4 through 8. Look at verse 5. 4 and 5, he asks the chief priests and the scribes, this was the Sanhedrin, the 70, where is the Christ to be born? And they quote Micah 5, 2, in Bethlehem of Judea. Check off number one, where is the kid? Bethlehem of Judea. Verse 7, he summons the wise men secretly, and he says, what time did the star appear? How old is the kid? It's two years ago. Okay, he's two years old. And then he sends them to Bethlehem, and he says, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. How am I going to get rid of the child? I just have to show up, and we'll take care of this threat. This is treachery at its highest form, but I want you to notice there is an even greater catastrophe happening here. 
And this one has more to do about us and our faith in God than anything else. He says, he came to the chief priests and scribes. So this is the Sanhedrin, who of all people, when they found out their king had arrived in Bethlehem, should have been scrambling over each other to sprint to Bethlehem. Right? These are the guys in charge with looking for the coming Messiah. And they've just been told by these Persian magi, he's here now. And they know from the scriptures, he's in Bethlehem. The Old Testament prophecies were as familiar to them as a favorite chocolate chip cookie recipe to a chocoholic mom of four kids. Man, they, they knew their king had come. They knew where he was. And they did nothing. Zip. Nada. Folks, Bethlehem from Jerusalem is six miles away. That's the distance from this church to the Akaipa Performing Arts Center. Not that far. It's a short walk to get there. And when it's clear to them that their king of kings has arrived and they don't do anything, we have to ask why. Think about this. Why would they not have gone? Well, it could have been a fear of Herod, and that's a legitimate fear given his track record. It could have been a complacency of heart. There were, there were a lot of other things that were important to them. It, it could have been um, perhaps the urgency of everyday life. Too many demands on their lives, they just didn't have the time to go. But I think it's their actions that should challenge us in our actions. We should be asking ourselves, how important is worship of the king to me? What about all of the other priorities of life that we have? And we do have a lot of things going on in our lives. But are we afraid of how others might look at us or view us if we make that kind of radical commitment to putting Jesus above everything else? Putting Jesus above your wife or your husband. Putting him above your job. Putting him above your Christmas break activities. Putting him above your kids. Anything and everything. This is where the treason becomes so important. It's always costly. It says to us, he has to be first and foremost. This is why Jesus said in the Gospels, unless a man or woman is willing to love me more than he loves his wife or husband, his family, and he gives a whole list of things, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Because I have to be first. I have to be Lord. I have to be the one that you pursue to worship. And I think that's what Jesus addresses in Matthew 13. We'll put this up on the screen for us, but it's this famous parable about the word of God being sown in the lives of people. But I want you to notice verse 18 and 19 as we put it up there. Jesus says, here then is the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and stop. What's the word about? It's about the kingdom and the king. The one who would rule all things. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Satan doesn't want us to be dedicated to the king. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Man, that is fantastic news that I can be a part of the kingdom of God with all that it has, the richness of it. But he has no root in himself. He endures for a while, and when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word, they're being challenged now. What is your priority? Is it to the culture? Is it to the politics? Is it to 
whatever it might be, that gets challenged, immediately they fall away because it's not a conviction. It's simply a thought. Verse 22, And as for what was sown, sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out and it proves unfruitful. All of the things of life that can really take our attention and choke out our allegiance to the king and it becomes unfruitful. But verse 23 says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it and bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another sixty and another thirty. In other words, there's not just the understanding, there's the response to it, which is what the Magi are doing. They knew the message and they said, we can't do nothing with this. We have to go. And I think that's the point of these stories is that everyone has as much of God as they want. It's a question of do you know and will you respond? Thirdly and finally, and by the way, I'm timing myself here just to be careful because this last point actually has some subpoints, but they're important for us. Verses 9 through 18, the Magi teaches that speaking as a worshiper and being a worshiper are not the same thing. They're not. Look at verse 8. Herod says, as soon as you find him, report to me. Why? so that I too may go and worship him. And this sounds genuine, because he uses the Greek word for worship, proskuneo, which means to kiss toward. I will come and worship him as well. And it sounds like he's ready to offer humble praise and, and submissive honor, and the Magi have no clue that his genuine offer of worship isn't uh, clean and green. They, they have no idea that he's... Uh, not going to come with them and sing, our God is an awesome God. They're at the, the foot of the, uh, the child's presence until God tells them. But the point that we find here is that the worship of, of God and the worship of oneself are very similar in appearance. They can look a lot the same. We can both smile and, uh, and signal an interest in, in God, but for different reasons. But on the outward, it looks the same. We can all sing praises to God. In fact, sometimes people who are worshiping more their own lives can be on key and sound better than everyone else. We can all use the right words. The Pharisees did this often. We can take studious notes in our church sermon outline and do nothing with it. Fake worship of God oftentimes looks like the real thing, but here are four differences, and I want to give these to you briefly. Number one, Genuine worshipers always pursue God rather than wait for God to come to them. We find that in verse 9. The Magi went on their way. They didn't say to the scribes and Pharisees, do you mind going and bringing him here? They went on their way. They were propelled to look for God. And it was because of their understanding of who he was. He was the king of kings, and they wanted to be there to welcome him and to honor him. Folks, I think sometimes when we ask people to come to Jesus, we mistakenly offer the wrong message. And we say, make Jesus a part of your life. And that's backwards. It's not what God intended. What he says to us is, come and be a part of Jesus' kingdom. He didn't come to be a part of our lives. He came to make us a part of what he was doing. So we need to pursue God. Don't wait for him to come. Look for him. Number two. Genuine worshipers experience the joy of God despite their surroundings 
circumstances or settings. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There was a party when they saw the star leading them to Bethlehem to be at a place to worship him. And folks, there was no palace. There was no cathedral. There was no um, uh, castle with with moats and, and towers. There was a poor man's home. But as true worshipers of God, they... They didn't need the stained glass windows. They didn't need the padded chairs. They didn't need PowerPoint presentations. They didn't need amazing worship teams. All they needed was to be in the presence of the king. And sometimes in life, our circumstances so affect our feelings that we find it hard to worship God. Would you agree with that? There are times that things happen around us that divert our attention from him to that. And it's a struggle, honestly. I I feel the same struggle to keep my focus on Christ. But when we do that, the circumstances diminish. This is why uh, Paul writes, uh, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Keep your eyes on him. Those of you who are old enough to remember, in 1982, the Wisconsin Badgers uh, were playing the uh, Michigan State uh, Spartans uh, in Wisconsin. And all of the Badger fans thought this was going to be a cakewalk because the, the Badgers were 4-2 and two and the Spartans were 0-6, oh right? Should be a no problem. 78,000 football fans were in the Badger stage, uh, stadium. But as they got into the game, they got to the third quarter, eight minutes left, and they're only ahead by six points. In fact... The Spartans were deep in Badger territory about to score. And you would think that this moment would cause concern for them, but it didn't because suddenly, at eight minutes left in the third quarter, all of the Wisconsin fans are starting to yell together, Coop! 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 And the Badger coach is going, There's nobody on my team named Coop. Not even a nickname. Who are they cheering for? What's going on? What he forgot to remember was that across the state was a baseball game going on, the World Series. And the Milwaukee Brewers were playing the St. Louis Cardinals. And this was an important game. It was game four of the 1982 World Series. The the Brewers were down one game. And in this particular game, uh, sixth inning, they were behind five to one. And everybody had their little portable radio in the football stadium. And they're listening in to the World Series. Who cares if this other team scores on the field? It's the World Series we're we're talking about. And right at that point, behind the batting of Cecil Coop Cooper, the Brewers begin to catch up, so much so that at that moment in the third quarter of the football game, with eight minutes left, the final score of the baseball game was put up on the scoreboard. Milwaukee 7, St. Louis 5. And everyone erupted, goop, 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 goop. So what's the point about that story? (laughs) They were in a football game that they were close to losing. The Spartans could have easily gone ahead. But they're not paying attention to that. They're paying attention to something 70 miles away that is inspiring them to be excited. And folks, when we think about Jesus Christ is our King of Kings at the right hand of the Father, so far away. 
And yet who he is and what he's doing in our world through Advent conspiracy and so many things around us, we can have the joy of knowing our Savior and King, even though circumstances around us may be challenging. We can be in touch with our King in heaven, and it changes life here and now. The last two points of how to tell a real McCoy worshiper from one that is not. Genuine worshipers are humble about who they are. Look at verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. That's a poor translation. The Greek says they hurled themselves at his feet. No hesitation, no holding back, no pauses, uh, no reluctance. Boom! They are on their face and knees before the babe of Bethlehem, this two-year-old child, to worship him. Faces in the dirt floor, not hanging on to their own sense of self-importance, admitting their place in the overall scheme of things. If he is king of kings, we deserve to be at his feet, willing to make Jesus more important than anything else in life. And this is where real worship begins. Hurling ourselves down before the king of kings with humble hearts and eager desires to obey him. True worship always begins with the word, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. You are my king. You are my sovereign. Last and final point. Genuine worshipers always bring something to sacrifice when they worship. Something to sacrifice or sacrificial to give to God. Look at verses 11 and 12. And they opened their treasures and presented them with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. They brought him things that were valuable. And it says, interestingly, out of their treasures. They had a lot of stuff with them. But they choose the most costly, the most valuable, the most meaningful, and they give that to him. And they, they are telling us worship is impossible without sacrifice. It, it just doesn't happen. Giving up things that are valuable to us is required if we're going to worship. And we know this because David writes in 2 Samuel 24, this truth, when he had sinned against God by counting the people, putting his reliance on his military might, on the size of his nation, instead of just trusting God, God sends an angel to begin punishing David and, and the people of Israel. And we find in verses 17 through 24 this statement. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I'm the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are my sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. And on that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Aruna saw him uh, and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has the Lord my king come to his servant? And David said, To buy your threshing floor. And I love Aruna's response, by the way. He says, let the Lord the king take whatever pleases him. Offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering. Here's the threshing sledges and the oak yok, ox yokes for the Lord. O king, Aruna gives all this to the king. May the Lord your God accept you. But notice David's response. The king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying, for, paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me 
nothing. So he brought the, he bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. I think if David were here today, he would have come with something sacrificial to bring in his worship. Now, we don't sacrifice animals today. We have the sacrifice of Christ that satisfies that. But we have the call to worship with giving. Do you remember when Jesus went to the temple and he sees a woman giving two uh, mites, the widow's mites, and he praises her and he says, guys, guys, look, look, there's worship right there. Did you see that? Well, they saw all the other men giving all of this stuff, and he says, no, she gave everything she had to me. That's an act of worship. When a woman washed his feet using costly perfume, Jesus pointed to that, and he says, guys, you see this? This is worship. That perfume cost a year's wages for her, and she gladly anointed his feet with it. And I think the question for all of us today is, what sacrifices are we bringing when we worship? What are the costly things that we're giving up to honor the King of Kings? It can be as simple as our time. Uh, getting involved, serving others as Jesus did, uh, helping out with young adults, uh, being a part of um, middle school ministry, high school ministry, uh, team moms. We can give our time. We can give our, our attentiveness, taking a portion of our thoughts every day and making sure they're given to Christ as opposed to whatever's left over at the course of the day or maybe tomorrow we'll get back to that or the day after that. And I know there are days that we are so busy it's hard to do that. But it's a sacrificial gift. We can give him our children, focusing them on the worthiness of his attention, telling the stories, reminding them of who he is. We can give of our possessions. Loan your van to the youth group for summer or winter camp. You think, that is going to come back dirty. <laughs> That's why Fast Five is here, right? But giving of the things that God has given us, bringing diapers to strong families, whatever it might be, um, making Advent Conspiracy last the rest of the year and, and helping the church ministries here on campus. And you notice that Jesus deserves this as our king. One last story and then we're done. At a previous church I pastored, the Sunday school took an offering for our kids in the Sudan. So there was a big jar that was taken to the Sunday school classes and they all gave their their gifts, and they had time to think about it ahead of time. What am I going to give? I should give of my best to the master. And so when it was all collected, we took the jar back in, and the treasurer is beginning to count it, and they held up a coin. It was a German Fennig. I'm thinking, well, this sounds like a joke. Somebody threw a German Fennig in there, and there was a miniature golf token. Well, the more we checked into it, we found out that that German Fennec was a prized coin by a little German girl in our church whose parents had come back from, grandparents had come back from Germany and given that to her as a special gift. She gave that. And the miniature golf token had been a treasured token in the top drawer of a kid's dresser for months, waiting for the next time they would go play miniature golf. And he could use his token. And he gave that. It doesn't matter what it is that we give. What matters is where is it coming from? Our perspective, our hearts, our emotions. Because Jesus is the King of Kings. And that moment in history when he erupted into human life and the Magi came and worshipped him is an object lesson for us. It's a story for us that challenges us to say, 
Am I a worshiper of the King of Kings this morning? Am I pursuing him? Am I willing to commit treason against all of life's priorities and make him number one? Am I willing to hurl myself down before him and let him know that he is my highest priority and my highest value in life? And in exchange, he offers us, look at that, not bad, huh? Yeah, praise God. <laughs> but don't miss the last point. He offers us a truly new life. This is why he came, to seek and save what was lost, to offer us a transformed existence here and now and ultimately in eternity. And he says, will you come, as the Magi did, will you bow before me, will you acknowledge who I am, will you give gifts to me so that I may give gifts to you? And what a great message for us to hear at Christmas time, right? Let's pray. Father, I have been challenged this week in my life as I've gone through this passage. I think there are areas of my life that I still need to uh, give to you. I need to hurl myself at your feet in these areas and say, this is, this is important to me, God. But I don't want it to be as important as, as you, Jesus. So I want to start by asking God, forgive me for the times that I have looked at life from the wrong perspective, looked at things with the wrong value system. And God, I want Jesus to continue to be my king, king of kings and lord of lords. And I invite you this morning, folks, if there is a priority in your life that is uh, greater than um, Jesus, you spend more time, money, effort on it, would you this morning commit treason against it? Tell it it is no longer number one in your life that you want to make Jesus your king and your Lord and serve him fully in every way and let the rest of life take its place where it belongs, in the back seat. I invite you to do that this morning. Just take a moment and say, Father God, I want Jesus to be the most important thing in my life. I struggle. I know it's hard for me at times. There are times I fail horribly and miserably. But God, help me to grow in this. Help me to make him more important and anything else. And Father, as we do that, we pray that you would transform our lives in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. Amen.